0: Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, newfound Josh Gordon fan Thomas Smiley, and we're here to talk about legacy.
1: It's sad that the Patriots and the Jets have the same record.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was a tough week for football. The Jets lost, the pass lost, but uh, the bright spot for me was Boston College actually cracked the AP Top 25 for the first time in uh, like a decade, so I got that going for me.
1: Yeah, I remember I was a big BC college football fan when I was in middle schoolish, like early '90s, and they were very, very, very good back then. It's it's good to see local teams competing.
0: Yeah, we had a bit of a drought, but now we have uh, New London, Connecticut's own AJ Dillon doing work for us, so we're looking pretty good. What's your uh, what's your NCAA team? I don't even know.
1: I don't even have one. Football football's mostly pros for me. I didn't grow up in the South, so. It's all about the Patriots.
0: Even being from Wisconsin.
1: Well I lived there for a year <laughs> then came to Massachusetts not really a huge college football fan.
0: So yeah speaking of sports I got out and played some golf yesterday in our new uh, dead format polo and I shot the, the best nine I've had all year I shot a 44 at the Meadows in Peabody which is a really tough course actually I don't know if you ever played it but the polo worked out really well for me so thank you very much for that.
1: You know what? I am glad that you were able to get one. They came out way, way nicer than I expected. And hopefully we can make those available to listeners if enough people show interest.
0: Yeah, we got a few messages about that already. And I'm still on the fence. Like, I feel like uh, you should have to interview to get one, but we can discuss it later. All right. So yeah, we had some Return to Return to Ravnica spoilers coming out. But just so everybody knows, I think we're just going to do a straight set review episode next week and try not to mention those this week.
1: Yeah, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it until I get an idea of what's in the whole set. There's some things I'm excited about and some things that I know are probably not going to work, but I want to talk about them anyway just because they potentially could.
0: Yeah, that's a teaser, man. I feel the same exact way. So yeah, so after 10 episodes, our first 10 with no guests at all, we're going to shake it up and have a guest now for the second consecutive week. This guest is someone that we both really admire, honestly, and astute listeners might recall us singing his praises once or twice before, Dr. Rich Shea.
2: Hello, how are you guys doing today?
1: We're doing great now that we get to talk to the legendary Mr. Shea, Dr. Shea, (laughs) Dr. Rich I don't even know how, how would you like for us to refer to you? Because if I, if I had a doctorate, ever I would force everybody to call me doctor.
2: I remember being a best man at the wedding pretty soon after getting my doctorate, and they called me up to do my best man speech. The DJ announced Mr. Richard Shea, and I said, no, no, Mr. Richard Shea's my dad. I'm Dr. Richard <laughs> Shea. But Rich is fine. Rich
0: is fine. Excellent. So we felt Rich would be the perfect guest for this episode because we're a legacy-focused cast, but we did want to dip our toes more into old school later on in this episode. And obviously, if you know Rich, he's a very valuable reference point for both formats right now.
1: Yeah, I remember an article that Bob wrote for Channel Fireball. It was an interviewer questionnaire with the most successful legacy players of all time and i remember seeing rich on that list i do remember that you were quite a few spots above me <laughs> well i think as soppy
2: as it might sound if you get to play legacy it's a success
0: yeah absolutely yeah
1: that is how both of us feel for sure
0: i think it's
2: an incredibly fun format and i think it's a a vibrant format and one fraught with innovation. Uh, there's there's a lot more to find, a lot more to mine in Legacy.
0: So have you gotten to play much Legacy since the since the banning of Deathrite Shaman?
2: Oh, the the Deathrite Shaman ban and the Cataxium Probe ban, and I I don't want to state which of them is more important because I think that they were both necessary. I I have I've played a fair bit and I've played several decks. I. I hadn't really been in a position where I found one deck that I was particularly enamored of. I really enjoyed land, so I played a good bit of that. Death and Taxes, Rogue Delver, played a fair bit of the Death Shadow deck. And right now, if I were playing something tomorrow, I would play Miracles.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a safe bet to me. And you've been deadly with Miracles in the past, right? How long were you playing that before the ban?
2: Years. I mean, I was playing that deck before the top ban. It's an incredibly good deck, it's an incredibly powerful deck, and I think it has a few qualities that make it very good now, but also a deck to really keep an eye on as we get into the return to return to return to return to the, you get the idea, Ravnica set. <laughs> we have that uh, Assassin's Trophy card, that will see play. Whether, whether or not it should is a separate discussion, I think it probably should, but it will. And the very best thing you can do against that sort of deck is to have not too many expensive permanents and to be chock-full of basic lands.
0: Yeah, that card seems like it's really going to help Miracles, if anything, because Absolutely. you're going to see less Abrupt Decays.
2: That's right. We'll see a reduction in Abrupt Decays and an increase in a card that's really at its best when your opponent only has two, three, four lands in his or her deck. And this card against a deck with 10 basics, it's not going to be all that great.
0: So right before the banning, at the uh, Leaving a Legacy, 3K at Gaming, etc., I believe you were playing Grixis Control, or Pile, I guess, at the time. Uh, is that correct?
1: I think it was Delver. It was Delver.
0: Oh, I'm sorry, yep. Grixis Delver. Have you run that at all since the ban?
2: No, no. That That whole deck was predicated on, essentially, the cards they banned. I think it was uncomfortably the best deck of a format, I and mean, I think the cards that went had to go to knock it down a little bit. The deck really got away with a lot on account of Death Threat Shaman. It was an accelerant, it was a threat, and it was a way to essentially string together an otherwise overly optimistic mana base. And you can tie that in with the Citaxian Probe. Delver is, of course, a turbo Xerox deck, which is to say that its cantrips are an inexorable part of its mana base. So by using taxian Probe, it not only gained relevant information, it also was able to essentially play fewer cards, which is the ultimate goal of Xerox decks. And it also solved the difficulty that older decks have like Bug Delver, which had really a challenge to find enough blue cards for Force of Will and enough instants and sorceries to flip Delver. So a zero-mana cycling blue sorcery was just everything
1: the deck could have dreamt of. So, really quickly, I wanted to ask you a question about Miracles. Have you had the opportunity to play the Accumulated Knowledge version of Miracles, and... If you have, what sort of side are you on with the AK versus Predict?
2: I'm pretty firmly on the side of accumulated knowledge. I think Predict is a great card, and it's it's great Rebecca Guay art, no question about it. Unfortunately, it's it's not really a two mana card. It's a, it's a card that you will have invested more mana to cast. It's a card that requires setup. Ponder, brainstorm. In the olden days, we could have used Sensei's Divining Top. But however you slice it, it's a card that you need to do more work to get your card advantage out of. And accumulated knowledge is a lot more flexible. You can just cast it and draw your cards. It's powerful because there are fewer restrictions on when you can use it, fewer necessary cantrips in order to set it up, And by the end, you are drawing a lot of cards and then snap castering and drawing a lot of cards again. So I'm pretty firmly on the accumulated knowledge side.
1: I 100% agree with you. In a lot of the matchups that I've been seeing in Miracles, the games have gone surprisingly long and grindy. And predict with the setup, you're getting your two for one, maybe two point something for one because you're milling a card that you don't need. But as the game goes on, accumulated knowledge gets absolutely bonkers. It it does, and I think one of the things that I really
2: like is the fact that what you want when you have a good draw engine is a way to cash in that draw engine and essentially use it to close out the game. Now, in the past, in Vintage, we've seen this happen with draw a bunch of cards and then Mindslaver the opponent or assemble Tinker Time Walk, um, We've seen this uh, come together in in modern sometimes, with enough lightning bolts and snap casters. And in Miracles, the way that you can cash in all of that card advantage into a win, I think the cleanest way to do it is actually Monastery Mentor. You get a bunch of cards in your hand, you cast your Mentor, and now you can chain through a bunch of instants, and suddenly, well, you've won.
1: Yeah, playing Jeskai Mentor in Vintage was one of the most fun experiences that I had before Mentor was restricted.
2: <laughs> I guess there are a lot of cards in Vintage that one could point to as being not fun for the other person in the match. Uh, Trinisphere, Chalice of the Void, I think Mentor certainly goes on that list. And the fact that the Xerox decks have been Tier 1 despite the fact that Mentor got restricted says a lot about how good they were before that.
0: So, Ian, sorry, you were asking about Grixis. Yeah, when I was testing for Grand Prix Seattle, I was playing a deck with four young pyromancers, four probes, and three therapies in the main. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I'd really played a Taxian Probe deck, honestly. (laughs) And within a week my my notes, my testing notes were just like this card should be banned. Yep. Because with all those synergies you get in that Grixis shell or you used to get, I guess, with uh, Cabal Therapy, Young Pyromancer, Fueling Del for your Gurmag Anglers, mm-hmm. it was, it just did everything. For a card that kind of does nothing, it also does everything.
2: Yep. And increasing your blue count for Force of Will. I, I've been pretty vocally advocating for getting rid of Gitaxian Probe and Death Threat Shaman, so I was really happy when that happened. It's it's nice for the DCI to have, you know, put really nice things under the Christmas tree that day.
0: Yeah, I was indifferent towards Death but getaxian Probe I feel like absolutely had to go. And I, I'm definitely enjoying Legacy now more with it gone. It's in a
2: great place. Wizards did
1: a fantastic, fantastic job with it.
0: Absolutely. And we should give them credit when they when they deserve it. Absolutely. No doubt at
1: all. So I think we're also starting to see Pretty much only in the shadow deck But a card that's very similar Obviously it's not blue And obviously it doesn't flip Delver But Street Wraith Provides a lot of the same Benefits to the shadow deck That Probe (laughs) used to for the Grixis Delver Now you can't combine it with Therapy but The extra two points Of life loss and the ability To provide a reanimate target Against Grixis control has been Sort of integral to the shadow plan and I know a lot of people have been clamoring about that card in Modern, and it's really interesting to see it break into Legacy.
2: It's a great card. When it first came out, I was, I was really keen on it being a straight-up 4-of in Vintage. If you go back and look at some of the theory behind a lot of these Xerox decks, 1-mana cantrips are your bread and butter. Why not a 0-mana cantrip? Now, in practice, in a deck that can't actually leverage it, it has more downside than upside. The two life ends up mattering significantly. And the fact that it isn't a blue card and the fact that you don't see what you're going to draw into at all, it, it creates some negatives. But I think as soon as you get a deck that can leverage that, it becomes a card where you need to make an argument for why you're not playing it. So I, I'm more surprised that it took this long.
1: Yeah, going going off of your statement about the strange mulligan decisions. It's always interesting to talk to people about hands that they Mulliganed or decided to keep and didn't get there that were like on the draw, no land, two probe, Mm -hmm. and playing Grixis Delver or some some hands with Street Wraith with the black-blue shadow deck. Yeah, I I think I I kept
2: that exact hand in the uh, tournament we were just talking about against Brian Cook in the finals. It didn't work out, but I sat there and I did the odds of what What were my odds to draw a land, and it seemed reasonable, so I kept.
1: I have definitely been in that exact same spot.
2: At the end of the day, we're playing a card game. Uh, we're playing a game with a lot of non-determinism, and so all you can do is look at the odds and do what looks like it should be in your favor. It doesn't always work out, but if it always worked out, we'd be playing chess or checkers or something without a random element.
0: Yeah, so... Looking at the results from this week from Legacy, we actually we had a challenge, as always. We had a deck dump from Moto as always. But there was actually an SCG in Syracuse this weekend that had a Classic. And uh, that was won by Blue White Helms. Did you guys see this? No. Yeah, this this Blue White Helm deck. And I believe the person posted that it was their second SCG Top 8 with uh, the Blue White Helm archetype.
2: Oh, I'm seeing this now. Azorius Helm by Jeffrey White.
0: Yeah, Star City naming conventions.
1: Well, they had just recently gone back to doing that, I guess because of the new block that's being released. But this deck has been floating around for such a long time, right? And it's really kind of... kind of an effect of how little Abrupt Decay we're seeing in this format. Because in the past, there was enough Abrupt Decay to keep decks like this down whereas i'm not sure if grixis control now has an answer to rest in peace energy field in the main deck i guess jace ultimate would be the only the only way that they have out of that
0: yeah typically i would i would probably agree with that i mean you know you have pierces and you have kolagon's commands but you have uh discard you know to to break it up i'm not sure if this is the same player whose list we talked about earlier, who was playing one Enlightened Tutor before, if you remember this, Tom?
1: Was that was that the classic that was in Philly? This is the same person. Wow. Star City has like a pretty good database where if you select the player name, it will bring up all of their Star City results that were published. So they Beautiful. they changed their naming conventions from U UW helm to Azorius Helm in the time from july through now hmm.
0: thanks cedric
1: Ugh. i don't want to go on like like a mini rant but it's rug delver not teamer delver i every time i see that i get i get disappointed no
2: i i strongly agree with you i think it's i i think that people adopted the original shard names like esper because it it happened organically and I think people genuinely like the world building, like the flavor. I think wizards tried to push the the Jess Kai and Temer. I mean, I, I wouldn't deign to use those. I understand some people have lower standards, but to me it just feels so forced.
1: Yeah, and even the sort of newer players that came in around cons. They still don't even use that. They'll just go with the color combinations.
2: Right, right. I, I I don't really care what the names of those tribes are. I don't find them too compelling, so I'm not gonna, you know, change my word choices to match that. If I'm building a red, white, and blue deck, it's red, white, and blue. It's not Jess
0: Kai. Yeah, there's definitely there's definitely power in the names, right? And I, I don't know what this is called. I don't know what discipline of of, you know, marketing or creative writing this might be, but Esper, Naya, those names to me, they have some sort of personality that is that goes along with the colors. Exactly. And when you talk about names like Abzan, that doesn't feel like junk feels like those three colors to me. Abzan does not.
2: Right, and I'm I, I agree. And like I said, I'm fine using Esper and I, I use um Uh, Grixis, it it all, those were well-done worlds, well-created, and I think they were were good and flavorful, and I think they can really capture the essence of that color combination, and I'm not even sure what a Mardu is or is not.
0: (laughs) I'm just going to go on a little rant for a second. When I got back into playing Magic, the very first thing I did, I was looking up the values of my old cards, and I wound up on Star City, and was... You know, they had the versus videos. It was Brian Bronduin playing against Chris Van Meter. And uh, at the top, it said Naya Zou versus John. And, you know, I'm coming back to Magic after a 15-year gap. I have no idea what these words mean. So I thought that their names were actually Naya and John, <laughs> the, the players' names. That's awesome. So... When Star City names this Azorius helm instead of Blue White Helm, they're definitely not making this any more approachable, if that's what they're thinking they're doing. It's definitely like putting it behind a barrier, like some sort of gatekeeping, honestly.
2: Well, I, I think there are very clever marketing people who are trying very hard to control the words you use, and uh, you know, I I think it's always good to be cautious before allowing how you think about things to be realigned by somebody's marketing department.
0: Absolutely. Speech is very powerful. It is. We had also uh, from the from the MTGO challenge yesterday, the top eight was pretty much what we'd expect. A couple of Control decks, a bigger Eldrazi deck, an aggro loam deck, Black Red Reanimator, Death and Taxes, a rug Delver deck with two mandrels and a true name, which I love. I'll co-sign that all day. And then in second place, we had uh, our our buddy Topher playing Accumulated Knowledge Miracles. So it's great to see him back playing blue cards. Also, Topher, I just spoke to him before the cast. He took second at the uh, the 1K up at the Complex this weekend, too.
1: He is on a heater. Absolute heater. Top 8 of Grand Prix Providence. Deep run into Richmond a few top eights in the challenges, and then the, um, the complex tournament on Saturday. I'm looking,
2: at, I'm looking at this list now, and it looks like he, he did not play the Mentors, which gives him some, some real space. He has 20 land and 2, two preordained, so that's actually a, a fair amount of mana. I'm going to count 2 preordains as a land. Four Snapcasters, four AKs, two Verdicts, two Council's Judgments, and two Termini.
1: I really like what the Miracles lists are doing, utilizing Back to Basics and instead of trying to play a three-color deck with Blood, Moon, and Blast in the sideboard. Back to Basics is really, really kind of making a push into Legacy from the Miracle Side and the Blue-White Delver or Blue-White Stoneblade shells. It's really sort of the new Blood Moon. It is.
2: I mean, it it is the new Blood Moon and that the dark came out before Urza's Saga. Um, That's fair. I think it, it does some interesting things. No mana is even less than red mana. And you get to have a... Uh, much more resilient mana base also you'll see that he's only running one tundra which is what uh andrew Cunio also did now that's that's really neat for budget implications for legacy as a brief aside but by only needing the one tundra you can run 10 basics without a huge problem like i was saying at the beginning of this i think basic lands are a great place to be
1: I completely agree, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes because this might not be the person who sort of originated that idea, but I believe Jim Davis played a 100 Miracles list at an SCG, I think it was in Worcester, hmm. and it was pre-Deathright Shaman Probe ban, but I think the mana bases are very similar with with how this deck has developed to that list
0: i thought that was the team tournament that we played in no i could be wrong i thought
1: that he did it at an individual event before that and he just ran the same deck back because i remember looking at lists after that event and thinking wow i really hadn't seen that before like purposefully playing one tundra so you can utilize back to basics with a ton of basic lands and i thought it was a really smart idea at the time and a lot more people are, are picking that up
0: yeah, I'm a big fan of, of back-to-basics from my side of the table because I'm usually playing Days, and with Days you can still pick up your land. It's still an island, so you pick it up, and then you redeploy it as an untapped land. So it's it's a lot more fun than playing against Blood Moon from, from the uh, the Noble Hierarch Delver side.
1: Yes, it is. So actually, yeah, was the SCG open in Worcester in March? The mana base was almost identical One Tundra, nine basics instead of ten. And then the assortment of fetch lands with two back-to-basics.
0: Yeah, he did well at that tournament, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, he finished um, third, fourth.
0: Wow, yeah, that's really good.
1: So, one other thing about the challenge that I noticed was, leading up to this week, I really thought that we were seeing, or going to see... A really big resurgence of lands, because the format seemed to be sort of shifting away from combo and back onto the fair decks. And in this challenge, there's only one Tabernacle, and it's in the agro-loam deck.
2: That's interesting. I guess I'm not entirely surprised. So I, I enjoy playing lands. I think it's, to me, the most fun deck in Legacy to play. But I actually don't think it's twelve position now. And I think that's a function of how good Miracles is.
0: So you think right now Miracles has the edge in that matchup?
2: I do. I think given where both decks are, with those main deck back to basics, I think it's, it's favorable for Miracles. And I don't want to take anything to a tournament that's not favored against Miracles. So I think that in order to... Um, because even looking at these results from the challenge... The only deck that went seven oh was Miracles. So I think you can I think you can adjust it. I think that the um, the rug deck featuring engineered explosives, a tropical island, and academy roads is actually much better against Miracles because recurring explosives does a lot of really nice things for you. That's actually probably the build of Lance that I would play if I were gonna play Lance tomorrow.
1: Would would you include something like Intuition? I've seen that in Ruglands decks to give you sort of another option to go get Loam or Wasteland or a combo piece. I, I don't think
2: there's room for it, unfortunately. I think it's basically just a straight-up red-green lands deck, which I guess they'd call a Gruul lands deck nowadays if we went with our new nomenclature. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's more of a wet Gruul featuring... Uh, just blue for Academy Ruins. No actual blue cards in the deck.
0: Sometimes you see Teleria West in there, too. Well, that's
2: double blue. That's, that's a lot of blue.
0: Yeah, shout out to our friend uh, Sean, Sean Calvo, who had played this Ruglands deck, and our friend Blake as well, who uh, referred to it as Old Man Lands. <laughs> because I guess it's, it's the older version of the deck.
2: It used to be that the deck would use Maloku. Really? Yeah, I remember getting into more than one draw in a tournament against the old-timey version of lands. This was before you could dig into the bottom of the ocean and find an ancient god who would come and crash in for 20. You had Maloku who would return lands and make one ones, ones and uh, it was, a if you'll pardon the term, a glacial way to win. And it actually had a lot of draws, because it was all the fun of a slow, grindy deck, but without the instant way of ending the game.
1: You are going to be playing Magic for a very long time each round.
2: I think there's still more work to be done on land, but like I said, recurring explosives is where I would want to be, but until people really dig into that, I'm not surprised, I'm not going to be surprised, that land is sort of not in the best spot right now.
0: Yeah, one thing that I notice looking at all the lists that are doing well is the lack of ways to deal with enchantments right and that seems to be I guess the role that you're prescribing for engineered explosives is a way for lands to deal with problem permanence Mm -hmm. it seems like with abrupt decay gone there's really there's just not a lot of main deck ways to get rid of an enchantment right
1: and I think that's one of the reasons why even pre-ban we saw bitter blossom start to gain a lot of popularity in different spots in legacy because enchantments are the hardest type of permanent to get rid of right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm jamming a max number of Sylvan libraries in every deck I've been playing. Uh, Search for his Canta is also great in that role. Bitter Blossom, as you mentioned. I guess it remains to be seen whether this Assassin's Trophy brings people back around to Bug, and then we'll start seeing decays again. Mm-hmm. But for now, uh, I think enchantments, especially two mana, you know, small mana investment enchantments that kind of act as planeswalkers honestly just this like on board source of card selection card advantage uh inevitability i think that's just the place to be right now yeah i obviously have no experience playing enchantress but i did notice that it put up a 5-0 in like the deck dump that we got from moto this week and i was kind of thinking with that you know enchantments are really good right now Is this a good time to be playing Enchantress? Like maybe this is a high point for it. We talked about Burn a couple weeks ago. This being like a relative high point for the deck, you know, a tier two deck spiking to like tier one point five, let's say. Maybe that's this time for Enchantress too. My advice
2: is to do your best not to look at the Moto deck dump. The way that Wizards, let's go with curate their numbers, means that it's so useless as to be something you're better off not looking at because it becomes misleading. My understanding is that uh, they essentially find a smattering of lists and then present only those lists that are far enough away from each other. So if you think about it like a, a sort of a, a graph of this many of each archetype went five o. wizards are sort of cutting the top off of each of those and presenting you with a flat view of what really should be a three-dimensional space so i actually think it's misleading enough to look at those that i avoid looking at
0: i couldn't agree more we've speculated privately tom and i on their algorithm for generating these deck lists mostly when we've been left off the 50 list actually and it does seem like they're trying to maximize the number of decks they can get in there that are you know the the whatever their max number of different slots is 10 15 20 but it does seem to give you like you were saying, like this, uh, this forced diversity sort of mm-hmm. printout of the format.
2: It does not actually give you an accurate measure of what the format looks like. Uh, and it doesn't give you a measure of how healthy the format is. It's, it's uh, an overly optimistic and, I would say, not remotely accurate perspective on the format. So it's better to ignore it. I, I wish that Wizards would go back to presenting accurate data. But I think that the data that they present is so muddled that it's worse than useless.
1: And I think that I've definitely noticed that when I've looked at either the Goldfish or MTG Top 8 site. When you see the metagame breakdown, close to a majority of the lists that are published are from the deck dump. And because they're only showing, like, an N equals one, or because they're only showing one of each type in that weekly dump, it makes the meta seem like it is more open than it actually would be if you only looked at larger tournaments.
2: Exactly. And Thomas, I'm sure you're well aware of how this was a, by definition, very biased sample.
1: My hopefully, my students do. <laughs> that's That's what I'm going for this year. I think I think that could actually
2: this could be a good lesson to teach your students about how data can misrepresent and how technically true facts can be wonderfully misleading if you let them be.
1: So I don't want to use this specific example because <laughs> I had some I had some issues last year with students googling my name. <laughs> and I came in one day to class and a kid in the back of the room raises his hand and said and just asked me what Bant Stoneblade was. And it, as soon as he did that, I was like, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to have to go through this with a whole class. And it sort of followed me through the whole year. My birthday was on the last day of school and they brought in a cake cake that said, happy birthday, Bant Stoneblade, and it had the, <laughs> had the Bant colors as the frosting. <laughs>
2: oh, I mean, at least your students brought you in a
1: cake, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And actually, one of them was like, I used to play Magic, not not like you do, but I I, I like it. So
0: there you go. <laughs> if, if we want to, I guess, get off Legacy now and switch over to old school, we can warn the listeners old school cast starts now.
1: I've actually never played a game of old school, but just looking at my old school cards gives me this warm and fuzzy feeling that I used to have when I played when I was 13, 14.
0: Yeah, so we're getting ready for uh, LobsterCon is coming up September 29th. It's in Somerville, Massachusetts. Jeff Menges will be there. The Artist Who Drew Swords to Plowshares, Raised Dead, Sea Serpent. Uh, A lot of the classic cards from Alpha and thereabouts. And it's looking to be really fun. There were 80 spots available. They sold out really quickly. I'm really looking forward to this tournament. Tom, I'm not sure if if you're going to be able to play in this tournament. You're on the standby list, I believe.
2: I am. Wow, they have a standby list already?
0: Oh yeah. Gosh. There's quite a few names on it actually. I'm really looking forward to this and honestly, it's been consuming a lot of a lot of the time that I usually spend thinking about magic, brewing legacy decks. I've been just thinking about old school lately.
1: I remember before Richmond, when I swung by your house, you had your old school deck laid out on your dining room table in piles looking beautiful. And you couldn't stop talking about it.
0: Dude, it, it consumes me. There's there's so much deck-building space in that format, which sounds ridiculous because it's like 900 cards or something ridiculously small like that. But there's just... there's In my mind, it's like uh, this infinitely unexplored realm, and you get to sort of go back to the first tournaments that I played in were like type one, you know, vintage tournaments back in the day. And I was always playing budget decks. And now I get to, you know, actually be playing power, be playing like, you know, optimized lists. And it's like rerunning, running those tournaments back with the cards that I wish I had back then. So we have Rich on the podcast and Rich, when did you get into old school?
2: Very recently. If you asked me about a year ago, Rich, what do you think about old school? I would say it's not old school. I would say it is a, it's like if you go to a, a Civil War reenactment, and some guy said, yeah, this is okay, but I like Klingons, so I'm going to have Klingons, so we'll have the North and the <laughs> South and Klingons, and that's kind of what it's like, and I've sort of had a Saul of Tarsus moment regarding this, where I've, I've come to realize that while it's not authentic, it's still really good. My, my initial hangups were about authenticity. And if you want something to recreate your childhood experience, assuming that you played Magic in 94, it's not going to do that for you. It's, it's similar the way that a Civil War reenactment with Klingons would be kind of similar, but they're also Klingons. And if you go into it looking for that, it's not going to deliver. If, however, you go into it looking for just a good experience, then it does deliver that. The card frames look nice, the art looks great, uh, There's. it's a great reminder of some of the really nice things that Magic had in that time period in terms of art, flavor, creativity, that well, I wish they had today.
0: I couldn't agree more with all of those sentiments. And I believe we got in about the same time because I remember talking to you about it at Gaming cetera and we were both picking up cards out of the old school case. And I was hesitant to dip my feet in for kind of different reasons, more because I thought it was, it was just a casual format. But having you in our old school group, I think it, it's incredibly valuable to me. Because you're coming from the competitive camp and I'm very much competitive at heart. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you hear about old school is that you shouldn't be playing, you know, the deck or, you know, that it's sort of frowned upon to be playing these optimal lists. It's about brewing. It's about the experience. It's about camaraderie. All those things are there and I value all those things. But I also, when I play Magic, I just want to win, you know, I just want to beat people. And I don't want to be considering, you know, oh, is this too spiky of a deck? That's not something that I ever want to be considering. And I feel like that's something that uh, this new wave, you know, well, that, that we're we're in, are bringing to it.
2: Let me let me try to unpack that a little bit because I think this is something we saw a long time ago in Magic. This notion that being a spike is bad, being a spike is wrong, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm I'm a Vorthos before a spike. Um, really? Yeah, I mean the new Magic card frames are why I've stopped getting four ofs of commons and uncommons for new sets. And it was ultimately the art that pulled me into old school. Not the fact that I can build a magic that can try to win, because I can do that in any format. It was really where I really didn't like what Magic cards look like today. And I liked a lot what they looked like then. So that's sort of why I got into the format in the first place. I wouldn't have to deal with any asymmetric looking card frames. But after Vorthos, I I get very spiky. And to me, that's a big part of the fun. I think it's an enjoyable challenge to try to optimize a list. I think it's a lot of fun to pour over my 75 and to agonize over how do I cyborg for this match, for that match, etc. And I think that, to me, is a huge part of the game. It's always been something that I've loved about the game, that it can be this intellectual pursuit. When I, when I hear people who say, Grouse about Keeper. Well, here are my thoughts. Do you care about winning or not? If you care about winning, then don't begrudge someone who's playing the best deck. And if you don't care about winning, why do you care if someone's playing the best deck? I think if people want to impose their own limitations on themselves, that's fine. No one's making you play Keeper. No one's making me play the ATOG deck, which is also one of the best decks in the format. But to to put down others for choosing to do a thing that makes it more likely that those people will win the game? Well, that doesn't make a bit of sense, because it's a game. And disliking people for trying to win the game, I think that's completely inconsistent with any notion of sportsmanship and especially completely inconsistent with the notion of people being able to enjoy what decks they want.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And between the three of us, I believe our DCI numbers added together probably would be under a million. We've all been playing since way back in the day.
1: We, I think we have something like 73, 74, 75 years of combined <laughs> magic experience. Just three people on a on a cast right now that have played magic for for about seventy five years is, is just crazy to me. It is.
0: And I totally agree with what you were saying about the card frames, Rich. I didn't think that this meant very much to me until I started playing old school. Because, you know, the cards are just a means to an end. I'm playing this game to win ultimately is, is why I enjoy mm-hmm. it. And I respect that. Yeah, and to, you know, also, I guess sort of the the deck building and metagaming is the part that I really focus on. Mm-hmm. And just playing old school, there's a lot, I guess maybe the limits on the format, because you don't have sort of like a brainstorm ponder shell that you can sort of stuff maybe eight to ten unique cards into. And yeah, it's a different deck, but it's it's basically still the same shell. In old school, there's there's the power that you are generally playing in any of the top tier decks. A lot of the decks just feel a lot different. Like a uh, for example, like the Living Plane deck that we saw won the Players Ball in Chicago, mm-hmm. or the a- the Atog deck that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, they they play out extremely differently. They're just very different decks, and I'm really enjoying my time in this space right now.
2: It's it's a really good. It's a really good time for Magic. I, I loved where the game was back then. We talked a lot about Turbo Xerox theory earlier, but you can't build a Xerox deck in 93-94. Just don't have the tools. You can play with Conch Horn as your, as your next <laughs> cantrip. Um, but what that means is that you can't build a deck to be hyper-consistent through card draw. If you want a consistent deck, the only way to achieve it is to put a bunch of the same card in your deck. But that's a different kind of consistency.
0: Yeah, and it feels to me like like a more honest kind of consistency. Honestly, like these decks that I'm building now, in anticipation of LobsterCon, they seem there's a lot more consideration to the synergy between the cards. You know, eliminating any dis synergy. Because you can't fix your draws with Brainstorm. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, cantrip into the right half of your deck for this particular matchup. It's like a holistic 60-card approach that we've kind of gotten away from in Legacy, I think. Oh, yeah. A lot of dis-synergy now. I think one of the one of the things that
2: 93-94 has that is not in a lot of today's magic formats is the excitement... Of the top of your library. And let me unpack that a little bit. 9394 is a format with hugely powerful effects Time Twister, Wheel of Fortune, Ancestral, Brain Geyser, Balance, Mind Twist. These are all thunderously powerful cards. And they, any of them, can easily swing a game from being behind to being well ahead. That's how powerful they are. And so if you have a format like Legacy where you don't have that level of power or you have so much consistency via your cantrips, your average draw is less exciting. And I think one of the things that in the very beginning made Magic such a good game was the pure excitement, the the adrenaline of your top decking. It's not an accident, I think, that Dr. Garfield made the game so that you start each of your turns with a draw. He could well have put that draw at the end of your turn instead. But he didn't. One of the effects of that is that you look forward to your turn. That little bit of entropy, that little bit of chaos of that one card entering your hand, well, that's exciting. And so you get a lot more of that in 93 and 94 because... Your top decks matter a lot more than they do in a brainstorm format.
1: That just really made me want to play old school right now.
2: <laughs> I'd recommend it. It's, it's a lot of fun, and the, the anticipation of, man, I'm probably dead, but if I mise my top deck Balancer Demonic Tutor, then I win. That's a really fun place to be. I don't think magic's fun when one player gets ahead. And stays ahead the entire game. You know, if one person's winning and he stays winning the whole time, that's not a good game. Even the people that write up WWF matches know that, right? I mean, Hulk Hogan never started by winning. He would be behind and then he would fight his way back. Why? That's a more compelling story. Just imagine if you were going to the movie and you saw, I don't know, the movie that they made about... One player getting out a mongoose and then wasting his opponent's land and then stifling his fetches and then winning. Well, You're going to want your money back, right? That's not a good story. That's not compelling. That's boring. The story that you want to watch is where the hero's behind and he's able to fight back from that. Much more compelling story craft. And I think 93-94 gives you those more compelling stories in a way that other formats just don't.
1: Straight from the hero's journey, 93-94 is a better format. <laughs>
0: exactly. So I played this Saturday. We got together. It was a bunch of us. Ryan Lesko, Tim McNath, Kramer Lawson. It was great. We got together at Rapscallions and played some games. And honestly, in those Bant colors, I just can't beat the ATOG deck, especially post-board when they have access to Gloom's. I'm really struggling with that matchup.
2: Well, I think one of the things you'll find is that in the 93-94 format, everyone knows that the ATOG deck is by far the best deck. And it's really only a gentleman's agreement to play more diverse decks that sort of keeps the format thriving.
0: So I know, like, ATOG is is your... (laughs) It's your guy and everything, but I kind of feel like you're not joking right now. Like, I, I think that the ATOG deck may actually just be the best deck.
2: Well, I... I'm. I'm only half joking. I think the Atog deck is certainly tier one, and it might be. It might be the best deck. Legitimately kidding aside, it's an extremely powerful deck. One of the things it does, if you think about it, you have all of these artifacts that don't really do much later in the game, right? A Black is great early, but eh, eventually it's not going to do so much. Ankh of Mishra. Uh, At some point, you're going to draw it, and it's going to be dead. Your moxes kind of lose their luster after a while. And that's where the Atog comes in. The Atog is more than happy to convert whatever you like into two damage. And given that you spent the rest of your entire deck trying to throw damage at your opponent, uh, the Atog's probably going to be able to sweep up after that.
0: And it's not just that, right? You have Wheel of Fortune, and you have Time Twister to turn your vices back on. Like, I feel like that is... Perhaps the most synergistic deck in the format. Like every piece, th- there's no dis-synergy. I feel between the the moving parts of the deck.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. The, uh, the The entire thing is put to good use, and you know, it's it's good enough that you have variation in it. I've seen people play with Serendipitous. I've seen I've seen people play with Mishra's Workshops. I know uh, Will McGran has done a lot of really exciting things with uh, splashing other colors on the deck, and I, I think it all comes together really nicely for a terrifyingly fast kill,
0: yeah, it's brutal. I mean, even copper tablet, it, it looks like you know the the least effective card is a card that I really never saw get much burn before this deck. And when you're in like a late game situation, because, like, Sierra Angels don't have lifelink. You know, there's so few ways to really gain life in this format. Mm-hmm. When they're top decking, it's like, man, I hope they don't draw lightning bolt, chain lightning, <laughs> uh, you know, a draw seven effect, mm-hmm. copper tablet. Pretty much every card in their deck can is a means to an end, which is, you know, just reducing your life down to zero. It just feels like the most efficient deck in the format right now. This
2: gets back to what I said earlier about consistency. I think... Because you don't have the cantrips to build a proper turbo Xerox deck, what you do have is consistency being derived only from having a bunch of copies of the same card. And the Atog deck essentially does that. Every card in the deck is either a burn spell of some kind, or a way to draw into more of them.
0: Yeah, that's very well put. So... What do you think about the, the Land's Edge deck going into this, like a Tax-Edge shell? Do you feel like that's a Tier 1 deck?
2: I, I, I put it together. Uh, I think it's a really cool and innovative deck, and huge props to Randy for this. I put it together. I played with it. It didn't, it didn't quite feel as good as Keeper or the Atog deck or the Black-Hymned Torak decks. And I think that comes down to consistency. With the right draws, it's unstoppable. But it doesn't really have any way to make those draws come together. You know, it has Sylvan Library, it has Land Tax, and it just sort of hopes that it can assemble the right pieces to rig its contraption together before anything bad happens.
0: Yeah, I agree. Looking at that deck, like I can see, you know, if you draw these six cards and then these other six cards are in the top ten of your library, how you could beat any deck. But it did seem to me like uh, kind of a glass cannon, honestly. And it seems like a lot of people have adopted this, and a lot of people have adopted like just ivory tower, you know, three or four ivory towers in general right now. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure if we're gonna see a lot of that deck at LobsterCon. I think that that more the uh, variants on the deck would be more common.
2: I I think. I mean, Ivory Tower is just a straight-up good card. and I'm pretty sure it was restricted back when this was actually happening.
0: Yeah, I've been wondering about that, too. I'm glad it's not restricted because Black Vice isn't restricted, so...
2: Black Vice, I think, was also giving a tour of the restricted list at some point. But I I think having both of them unrestricted is better than restricting them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What's your position on Stripmine? So... At first I was very
2: staunchly in favor of one strip mine because it was restricted and in the beginning, again, what put me off the format was its lack of authenticity. So then I, I read that article by Brian Weissman about how why he believes in four strip mine, and I actually found that pretty compelling. I think the argument to do that is Library of Alexandria is just a mess. It's such a horribly broken card that it would be way too much against the format to ban it. I mean, this is a format where you can play Chaos Orb and Shaharazad. But it's also the best card in the format. And it's it's crushing when there's no answer to it. So if... I think I prefer 4 Stripmine... But if we're going to be in the business of making up rules that are different and a riding cards anyways, what we could do is just ride a strip mine to be wasteland.
0: I would one hundred percent sign on to that. I that's sort of the barrier. When I've been introducing people to this format, a lot of them sort of hit a wall with the four strip mine. They're like, Oh, you know, what's this? And it's like, well, you don't you don't complain about four wasteland and legacy it's basically the same thing. I just feel like uh, Wasteland was sort of a breakthrough in early Magic design where they finally got the card right. And I I, I kind of wish we could replace Strip Mines with Wastelands in old school.
2: If we're going to go around eroding Chaos Orton, and if we're going to arbitrarily bring back Mana Burn, but not the other dozens and dozens and dozens of things that Wizards have changed since then, uh, I don't Think it's any more of a leap to a rata strip mine to be wasteland. I'm also always conscious of what would make budget decks more viable, and you know the black rack decks, the uh, the white weenie decks, the mono red goblin burn decks. None of those are going to be hurt by playing a lot of wasteland. No, but the way it is now, it's only blood moon to punish non basics. So I actually think not only would it... It would solve a lot of problems if we did this. It would solve the Library of Alexandria problem. It would solve the games becoming miserable, because at least with Wasteland, if your mana base gets destroyed, that's not a level it's your fault, because you could have played more basics. And it would really prop up those monor- color budget decks and mean that it's not almost strictly worse not to be splashing an extra color.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... It's kind of weird when you play your first few games of old school after, you know, coming from playing Legacy where you're like, oh, I want to play out my basic forest first because if I get stripped, I don't want to be off white mana, you know, Mm -hmm. It's, it's not you're not thinking about vulnerability to wasteland or anything. And that's something that I sort of ran into uh, making a few mistakes when I first started playing is you kind of want to keep your quote-unquote best lands in hand early in the game. Right. So as not to open them up to strip mine. Right. And I, it just seems like a weird pattern, honestly. Well,
2: it, it is, but strip mine's a weird card.
0: Yeah, it really is. So overall, a, a big question I guess I have for you, Rich, is looking at old school in general... Compared to Legacy, how much do you think you enjoy the play patterns of old school? And how much do you feel that you enjoy like the brewing aspect of old school?
2: I, I talked a lot earlier about the sort of excitement of one top deck being able to change everything. And I really enjoy that aspect of the 93-94 format. It's, it's really exciting, that I'm very seldom in a position where... I'm deterministically dead. There's so often some line that the top of my library could feed to me. And I think that's that's really exciting. I also think it's exciting that you get to see spectacularly powerful things. If you think of a graph of the power of an average deck in Legacy and in ninety-three-ninety four, there's way more variance in a ninety-three-ninety four deck. Sometimes your opponent will just have a shiv and dragon on turn one. Sometimes your opponent will twist away your opening hand or might twist your hand away. And you know, when my opponent does something devastating to me on turn one, I think it's great. I think it's a really fun part of the format that when the stars align just right, you get to be a really powerful wizard. And I don't really, you don't see that much out of legacy except for the decks that are kind of built just to do that, but that's not nearly as exciting because that's really all those decks can do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It feels to me like every game of 93, 94 is like its own self-contained sort of battle because there isn't that sort of consistency that you see in Legacy where the games start to resemble each other mm-hmm. with, uh, with the cantrips and being able to shuffle away cards. And I do appreciate that about Legacy, where I feel like you have a, a higher chance of the player who understands the matchup better of winning. Yes. But there's definitely something thrilling about the other side of that coin.
1: It just sort of makes your matches play out much more similarly. Like, you're playing a Brainstorm deck versus Death and Taxes. Your games are going to go very consistently throughout your matches whereas in old school you get more play from playing the same matchup
2: well said there's there's a lot more variance in 93 94 and what that means is yes in legacy the better player is more likely to win the match and that is a feature of legacy and you can sort of see how that is mutually disjoint from the idea that every game you play of the same decks, it's gonna be a new and exciting journey with new and exciting experiences. And you can sort of see how those two goods are not in accord with one another.
0: So it's like a too much of a good thing sort of well oh. no, I think I think it's more that sometimes
2: good things are at odds. And if I said, should the better player win the game? Well, sure, that's good. And if I said, should the game stay new and fresh and exciting? Well, that's good too. But if you think about it, those are kind of two good things that don't really go well with each other, right? If the better player is going to win a higher proportion of the games, then more than likely that's coming at the cost of variance. But that variance is very often what leads to memorable and exciting games that are good stories
0: absolutely yeah that makes a lot of sense and I think you put it very eloquently there
2: thank you I think and I, I'm not saying one is better than the other I I think both 9394 and legacy are both good formats and I think that they they both have a lot of great things going for them and I think the way that they're different from one another is part of that
0: so do you have any designs on going to Eternal Weekend this year?
2: Oh, I'm certainly going to Eternal Weekend.
0: Oh, excellent. You play Vintage? Is that your when you look at Eternal Weekend, is your primary goal to be playing in the, the Vintage main event?
2: My pri yeah, absolutely. Last year I made top eight of Vintage and I didn't even play Legacy because I wanted to prep for Vintage.
0: Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. What deck were you playing?
2: I was playing Ravager
0: Shops. Boo. Actually, Rich, I met you at Eternal Weekend for the first time. It was a couple of years back. You were playing Shops, and I was playing uh, Infect. Oh, I think I remember. Yeah. In, like, the XO. It was, like, five O bracket or yeah, something. Yeah. We were right. at table one, and you handed me a thorough beating.
2: <laughs> I, I remember that match. And I remember, um, did you come in second for the budget prize that year?
0: I did, yeah, actually. Awesome. Awesome. I ran into a string of Shops decks, which weren't kind to me. They're but not kind, was, no. That was pre-chalice ban, so my only hope was that they wouldn't realize I was an unpowered deck and just drop a chalice on zero. And it worked one out of four times.
2: <laughs> the Chalice of the Void is, I think, believe it or not, my least favorite card ever printed.
0: I'm on board with that 100%.
2: It's, it's such
1: a miserable card. I agree.
0: Sometimes though I think it might be a necessary check on a format, right? Like in legacy, I always feel like the at the top level, the pillars of the format are, you know, brainstorm, chalice. Those are like your your sort of delineation at the at the at the very top level. And you always have those chalice decks as an ultimate check on the blue decks, right?
2: I think chalice chalice has some problems beyond that. If you made a card that was simply two-colorless, players can't cast spells with one converted mana cost, then I'd say, sure, that's a fine card. But there's two problems with Chalice. One, in Vintage, it is a check on losing the die roll. Because all of our decks have moxes. If you go first, if you win the die roll, and you shove out that Chalice at zero, you're now punishing your opponent for playing Vintage. That makes it especially horrible. The other big problem with Chalice is it's a rules abomination. Um, I've had on four separate occasions someone outside of my match remind my opponent about his Chalice. It's happened four times. The fact that I'm allowed to cast a spell into your Chalice of the Void and then it's up to you to remember it, combined with the helpful nature of people who often helpfully remind opponents about chalices just leads to all sorts of terrible rule situations. I've had long judge calls about my opponent saying, okay, did he really mean? Okay. That sort of thing with chalice of the void. So the, the way the trigger rules work really is not compatible with that card.
0: Yeah, that's awful. What was the, uh, the biggest event that that happened to you in? Because that's, that's really Bush league. If someone outside of the game, calls you know when you're the one casting into the chalice rather than the person casting into their own chalice because then i feel like it's legitimate yeah that's legitimate for a third party to get involved
2: this was actually we were playing for top eight and um this was in a eudaimonia tournament out in california and um i i cast a spell and uh steve Menendian actually reminded my opponent about his chalice trigger that ended up with Steve getting a, I guess they, they called it a match loss, but it was in the top eight, so it was the same as a, it knocked him out of the tournament.
0: Wow, so Steve was already in the top eight? Mm-hmm, and
2: it knocked him out of the top eight, but it's, it's outside assistance. It's not a, yeah, I, I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it. I'm, I'm sure that he didn't, you know, think to do anything negative. It's just... It's, I, I blame the card Chalice of the Void because of the really strange way that it works.
1: Yeah, it works It works beautifully online where I will completely forget about it and <laughs> go ahead and cast my spells into it. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yep. But in real life, no. It's, it. So I think they solved this with Sanctum Prelate. There's no zero mana mode to shut off someone's turn and there's no there's no casting a spell into it and then hoping your opponent forgets.
1: Plus it still sort of allows your opponent to play magic because you can cast creature spells. So it's not like they're fully locked out of one mana cost of things to do.
2: You know, it's much like we were discussing earlier with Stripmine into Wasteland. It's a card that Wizards messed up and then made a better version of it in the future.
0: Absolutely. So, Rich, while we have you here, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on Misstep? Uh, Are you pro Misstep Restriction?
2: I, I am very strongly in favor of Misstep Restriction, yes. I'm surprised that Wizards haven't learned their lessons yet about free Phyrexian spells. Misstep is just another component that pushes this race to the bottom in blue decks where... Eking out little mana advantages is how you win a blue Xerox mirror. It also does some work in a roundabout way to make workshops a more powerful deck, because all the Xerox decks are running three or four copies of a card that has almost no words on it against workshops.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm glad to hear that you're on on, uh, our team here. It, it really felt like you're playing this card, you're pre-boarded basically if you're playing three or four missteps main, you're pre-boarded for blue matchups and you're just super vulnerable to the shops matchups. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the blue versus shops matchups were the least fun games of vintage that I played. There are a lot
2: of great ways to have unpleasant vintage matchups, but <laughs> getting, getting just crushed by a pile of mental missteps is certainly one of them. Paying a man for your spell might not seem like a lot, but think about, think about how important it is that Force of Will costs zero instead of one. That one mana makes a big difference. And free spells are notoriously powerful. There are a lot of spells that see play because they're free that never would see play. Surgical Extraction is a multi-format all-star. Extrapate? Not so much. Getaxian Probe? banned or restricted in every format except Pauper, no one's going to go around putting Peak on the restricted list. (laughs) So, you, you see that free spells are so powerful. And I don't even need to mention that
0: Black Lotus
2: is a free spell.
0: Yeah, that's pretty convincing. So, to be fair, I
1: think that of all those cards that you mentioned, Surgical Extraction is actually one that the Phyrexian mana cost of it being zero is super important. I can't imagine where Legacy would be, other than having Grizzlebrand be banned, if Surgical Extraction wasn't in Legacy sideboards as an answer to Black Red. It, it may well
2: be. I mean, there there's Fairy Macabre, which does something not entirely dissimilar, and there's Ravenous Trap, and this goes all the way back to Tormot's Crypt. Wizard's has long realized that you need answers to things or things will get out of hand. And the Graveyard is such a powerful resource that you want to have zero mana answers to it. Whereas the stack might not be the best place for zero mana answers.
1: Can, can we just take a, take a detour a little bit and talk about how terrible Flusterstorm is to play with on Magic Online? As soon as you said <laughs> the stack... And we had, like, the little vintage conversation. Just that spell online is a nightmare.
2: It is. I agree. Your opponent Flusterstorms your spell, and now there are 38 copies of Flusterstorm. And um, I don't know if you guys have watched any of my streams, but my least favorite thing about moto and there's a long list, but my least favorite thing is how it keeps popping up the graveyard, even though... The spell that you countered, (laughs) it got countered. It goes to the graveyard. It's not even the same object anymore because it changed zones. But it keeps popping up that spell because there are still copies of Flusterstorm that target it. And you get a whole bunch of copies of Flusterstorm on the stack, and God forbid your opponent casts Flusterstorm too. And I've certainly been in situations where I've had a third Flusterstorm, and now no one knows what's happening, and... You know, you just sit there wishing that the mid-90s had produced better software, so you wouldn't have to be dealing with this. Everything about Flusterstorm is like a what's wrong with Modo Elemental. The fact that storm capriciously arises, or not, the, the storm count is fickle, It. Sometimes will show up, and other times doesn't deign to. It what, has better things yeah, to do. Yeah, what's
0: up with that? Why does it not show up sometimes?
2: Um, I would say that making things happen under certain conditions is a hard computer problem. But people won't know that I'm joking, so I won't. <laughs> it's Moto. Why? Why does anything happen on Moto the way it does? I. It's it's
0: so weird, man. I can't figure out any rhyme or reason for that. Like, I'll be in, I'll be in a matchup against an ant deck. And I know the storm count is either five or six. And I'm like, this thing is showing up all the time saying three. Why is it not here right now? Right. Why is the storm count? It's very strange.
2: It It is. I I have friends who played a lot back in the day. If Modo were better quality, I'd be able to recommend it to them. But I can't because they're my friends.
1: So what else? Is there anything that we didn't talk about that we want to talk about? For ninety
2: three, ninety four, I, I guess I'll just add one of the things I love about that format is I see people using it as an outlet for creativity in a way that I just don't see in other formats. One of the things that I, I really like about it is that people are sort of creating a narrative for themselves with this format. They are they're using their decks to express themselves, and I I just don't think that that's something that I see in other formats. One of the things that I, I read that Jesper Mirafors wrote on the Facebook is that early on, it was about giving players the idea of being able to sort of think of their own stories, that the, the people playing the game were able to picture themselves in the stories, so they weren't just watching Jace or Chandra gallivanting about casting generic Kaladesh Burnspell number 7. They were the people casting the spells, and, and so I think part of that, that early flavor, is why people get so wrapped up in, not even necessarily the optimal decks in 93, 94, but the decks that resonate with them, because I think people find the the ability to uh, sort of write their own stories is much more powerful in that format because of the flavor of the cards.
0: I think that was beautifully put. And yeah, we see players like, uh, I don't know if you've met Kramer or our friend uh, Nick Scarchilli. These players who are sort of lapsed magic players who have like 20-year gaps who are coming back to the game. And they look at standard and they see this thing, sort of because it's a money pit, and sort of because it's this homogenized net decking sort of world. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go there, and they end up with us at the bars playing ninety three, ninety four, and it still has that sort of quote unquote magic. The format, you know, it still right. has this undiscovered paradise of <laughs> you know playing a bad card and and not not a bad card, but you know playing. Playing your pet card and having it work out for you, you know, being someone with a with a nightmare or a force of nature or whatever, that still works some some percentage of the time. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, man. I, I feel like reenervated with the game after playing this format for a few months.
2: And you never know when your pet card is going to turn out to be the best card in the format.
0: That's what's so beautiful about it. Is, is if you work hard enough, if you you know, find the right the right combination of cards, mm-hmm. you can. You can definitely show up and it's really cool how they do things like uh, you know, creative prizes. Yeah. Uh, you know Love the it. the the top sometimes the best prize in a tournament will be for the the top brew of the tournament. Uh, I, I just think that's so cool, man. I'm I'm really enamored with it right now. Oh
2: yeah, I've I've been having so much fun with it lately. It's it's been great. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Have you div have you uh dove into pre modern at all?
2: No, I, I don't have Brain space for another format
0: (laughs) yeah i haven't i haven't either but i feel like maybe that's the next frontier because i feel like i feel like there are (laughs) some limitations like with old school there's really no reason to play a two-color deck right because you have strip mine punishing all lands so there's there's really no incentive to playing basics and you have city of brass in there as your your sort of tri dual land so if you're if you were to play a two-color deck Mm-hmm. You're going to need multiple cities to start with and you don't have like a second dual land, like an Ice Age Painland or something right. to fill that gap. So you kind of are incentivized. Once you're playing two colors, you're kind of playing three colors. So I do feel like there's a gap in the format there.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's incredible what you can do with a limited card pool, but you're right. If you're playing two colors, the the marginal cost of playing a third color, if you have the cards to do so, is very low
0: exactly so yeah i feel like magic the game is kind of in a good spot because of these player run formats like we're talking about with old school or pre-modern or you know just wherever that goes next i feel like there's so much unexplored from the early days of the game that we'll be able to create formats even if standard isn't appealing to us the game isn't appealing to us anymore we'll still find a way I,
2: I don't know if that means magic's in a good spot, but it means that magic should still be what you need it to be.
0: Well put. Did you hear the rumblings about the signature spellbook coming out with the old card frames?
2: I, I've, I've heard bits and pieces about it. I I don't want to speculate because too many things could go terribly wrong. They could make it all foil, in which case I have no interest. Because even I won't use old card frames if it means condescending to use foils. And <laughs> I, they they might ruin it by changing it in some way that makes it not symmetrical. I hope they do correct card frame, non-foil. I think that would be amazing.
0: I feel like they're going to put that stupid sticker on it.
2: You know, my, I was talking with my friend Al, and I think we came up with a solution for this you need a set symbol anyway. So why not just put the set symbol on every card where the the foily thing is? And then you'll have more room on the type line. And every card will at least have the same frame instead of having a different frame for rares and mythics to accommodate the set symbol. Or the foil planeswalkery emblem, whatever it's called.
0: That's one of the best ideas I've heard. Or alternatively, just put the the hologram in that space where the set symbol is right now either or i i hadn't actually thought about that but i i really think that's a good idea
2: Mm-hmm. it's it's redundant i think to have both
0: yeah very nice yeah you're right because with the rare cards I, i'm totally on board with this we broke the format we got to send an email to gavin right now <laughs> so is that a wrap guys
2: i think i'm good
0: did you have anything you wanted to plug, Rich? Is there an upcoming season of uh, Vintage Super League coming up?
2: Not yet, not yet. I, you know, I, I hope that'll be in the not too distant future. But until then, nothing.
0: Where can listeners find you if they're looking for you?
2: Well, I, I'm on uh, Twitter, and you can find me at AtogLord on Twitter, and I stream at on Twitch at Rich Shea. So you can follow me on Twitter. I basically only. Twitter about magic-related stuff, I'd encourage you to, if, if you haven't played a lot of these old formats and you think you might be interested in them, or if you're a legacy player and you want to check out some vintage, I'd strongly encourage you to tune into my stream for vintage. And if you um, go on YouTube, you can find archives of my prior streams.
0: Yeah, I don't watch streams a whole lot relative to other legacy players I know. But when I do watch streams, I watch Rich more than anyone else, I'd say. I highly recommend Uh, his stream. He's a great Twitter follow, too. Definitely hit him up if you're not already following. Definitely worth your time. Well,
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for having me on today, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on. We were so excited to get The Legend on the cast, and you did an outstanding job today.
2: Well, thanks so much. I, I don't think I've been on a podcast before, but... This was fun,
0: dude. We're really honored. This is your first podcast appearance that that blew us away. Like we we were shocked by that, and yeah, we're very honored to have you. So we really appreciate that. Thanks. This this was this was a blast. Tom, where can the listeners find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at tsmileymtg. You can follow the cast on Twitter at deadformatcast. And as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please. Follow on SoundCloud or iTunes or the Google Play Store.
0: If you want to leave us an email, deadformatcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ian18125. And I think that's a wrap.